0: everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Inkwell Gamers podcast. I'm Dana, here with my husband, Dalton. Hello. And today we are going to go over the principles of deck building. In our last episode, we mentioned how we would be getting into starter deck overviews and upgrades now, but we felt like as we continue down this path of upgrading and deck building, it would be beneficial for us to take a step back first to go over the principles of deck building before we get into all the rest. This game has brought in a lot of people who are either completely new to TCGs or maybe people who have maybe previously just been casual kitchen table players that are now interested in going into the competitive world. Because Dalton has many more years of experience with TCGs over me, we thought that this episode could be formatted in the style of an interview where I will be the interviewer and Dalton will be the interviewee. So with that being said... Are you ready to jump in?
1: Yeah, let's do it. It should be fun.
0: Okay. So my first question to you is, what are the different deck archetypes of TCGs? And can you give examples of current decks in Lorcana that would fall under those archetypes?
1: Yeah. So first, I would like to say that while I feel like there's four main deck archetypes, a lot of the times there are kind of sub archetypes in each of those as well. But we'll be mainly talking about the... The big four, let's say. Okay. So the first one is an aggro deck. Aggro decks, their whole goal is to get to 20 lore as fast as possible in Loracana. And a good example of this would be uh, Stitch Rockstar decks, just because the whole idea is to flood the board with little characters and then just quest away, right? Okay. The next example of a deck archetype is mid-range deck. Okay, so a good example of this deck is the Amber Steel Songs deck. And the advantage of playing a mid range deck is that depending on what your opponent's deck is trying to do, you can kind of shift your game plan towards that. Mm-hmm. The third one is Control. Now, the most popular Control deck is probably the Ruby Amethyst variations. The whole goal is to drag the game out as long as possible and use your more expensive, more powerful cards to win long game. And the fourth one is Combo. A good example of the Combo is... The Maurice and Ariel item decks, they're usually just trying to maybe gather a couple cards together. Maybe it's Maurice, Ariel, and Eye of the Fates. And then you're just trying to play as many items as possible after that to win in a two or three turn window.
0: Okay, so if we're kind of imagining like a Venn diagram... So would that mid-range be kind of in between the aggro and the control?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
0: Absolutely. And then how would... So if it's still visualizing the Venn diagram, can we fit the combo into that? Or is it kind of on its own little
1: so, diagram? <laughs> yeah, I would say it's kind of on its own axis a little bit. So you would have the aggro taking up one section and then uh, the mid-range taking up the next section, control, and then combo. There Like I said, there's a lot of different archetypes that are kind of in these, some sub-archetypes, like I Mm -hmm. said. So these aren't always going to be hard and set rules. This is just a general guideline. So
0: is mid-range in between just the two aggro control or is it technically a little bit of all three if you throw the combo in there? Sorry if I misunderstood you.
1: No no yeah it's uh it's just in between aggro and control is generally a little bit more long game oriented than aggro a little more short game oriented than control would be.
0: Okay okay sorry I was I just wanted to make sure I understood you. Yeah absolutely. Cool. So how would you classify these archetypes as playing against each other? Like which ones would have the advantage over the others?
1: All right. So this is just kind of in a vacuum as it were, but depending on the cards and the tools that each deck has, this might not always be the case, but it is generally, generally the case, right? So aggro is usually good against the control and combo decks because they're a little bit slower. Mid-range is good against the aggro decks because they're just a little bit bigger. They usually have a little bit more interaction and removal spells. Control is just a little bit bigger than the mid-range decks, so they're even a little bit slower, a little more late-game oriented, so a lot of the early plays that the mid-range decks have just aren't effective against the control decks, so the control decks can play to the longer game and have a little bit more of an advantage there. And then the combo decks... You know, just depending on the combo, usually has pretty good tools to, to beat the control and the mid-range decks, but they're oftentimes too slow to beat the aggro decks. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, this could vary depending on the different tools that each deck has in the current format, but this is just, like I said, general guideline.
0: Okay. So, I mean, and if this is a stupid question, we could cut this out later, but... Obviously, the goal of Lorcana is to be the first to gain 20 lore. So why even have any of the other archetypes and not just have everybody try to do aggro and just try to race each other?
1: So it's really important to have different deck archetypes for the health of the game. You don't want... Every single game that you play to play out the exact same way. You don't want to play against the same cards every single game. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that they give powerful control cards like Be Prepared. Something that can just take care of the whole board for a slow deck. It's really important that they have cards like Lilo making a wish for the aggro deck. So they can get on the board early and start questing. You just don't want to play against Stitch Rockstar decks game after game after game because the gameplay would get old and it just wouldn't be that much fun.
0: Yeah, it would get boring. I could see that for sure yeah okay so getting more into building your deck when doing so for a new game or format what is your starting point so for example do you choose your desired archetype first and how you feel like you want to play or do you start with the cards and then whatever archetype finds itself naturally to it is the one that you're going with like what are your suggestions for that
1: So first of all, I like to just find the cards that I feel like are the most powerful and build around those cards. So a couple examples is Stitch Rockstar and Maurice. Now Maurice hasn't proven to be particularly great because the items deck just doesn't have enough Mm -hmm. good items to, to get there. But Stitch Rockstar is a very, very strong card and Uh, very popular one. So if I was just looking through the spoilers, I would see that and be like, you know what, this is probably one of the better cards in the format. And that's that's where I want to start. I want to start with the most powerful cards in the format. And then from there, I just want to see what kind of deck those cards lend themselves to. So Mm -hmm. for Stitch Rockstar... Specifically, you wanna have a lot of cheap cost characters in your deck. So you can activate Stitch's ability, draw a bunch of cards, chain a bunch of cheap characters together. And if you have a bunch of cheap characters in your deck, That probably means you're going to be a more aggressive deck, right? So from there, I want to see what other cards in the format might work well with Stitch Rockstar as well. So you'll see Lilo making a wish. You'll see what's what's a really good card with Lilo making a wish. Okay, you'll see Bodyguard Simba, Mm -hmm. right? It's a two cost character that triggers Stitch Rockstar and it helps protect the best one drop in your color. Okay, so that's kind of where I like to go from there. Then I'm just trying to pile as many cheap characters into the deck as possible so that I can make stitches ability trigger as many times as possible, right? And then the next question that you should ask yourself, well... What is the next best color that supports this kind of strategy? And it could be one of the most popular ones right now is just Steel. You have a lot of cheap challenger characters. To get on the board early, you have the one-cost Simba, which could help you find your Stitch Rockstar with the draw and discard ability. Then you have really good... Removal actions like smash or fire the cannons and grab your swords to help against the other aggressive decks as well Or maybe you just go into a different direction and your Amber along with Emerald And Emerald has a lot of really high questers that are pretty cheap So you can continuously trigger Stitch's ability as well While also getting down a bunch of Flynn Riders and some other disruptive cards like Corella if you like that So there's, you're just really trying to figure out what is the next best color that goes with the main card that you wanna build your deck around. That's really important. From there, I want to basically take out all of the cards that were playable in this specific deck from those two colors and then just lay them out in an ink curve. So all the cards that cost one ink will be in one pile, all the cards that cost two ink, three ink will be in one pile, four ink in a separate pile, and so on and so forth. This is really important because what it allows you to do is make sure that You don't have a bunch of eight cost cards in your Stitch Rockstar deck. That doesn't really make any sense, right?
0: Mm You would have Um, nothing to play at the beginning. Yeah,
1: you'd have nothing to play at the beginning. You're never going to trigger Stitch. So, of course, you're not playing that many eight cost cards anyway. And there aren't that many. But you really get a good view of the outline of your deck when you do that.
0: Yeah, I noticed when we played at our LGS for the release mm-hmm. that I looked over at your side of the table and you ha- you were I could tell that you were sorting them in a very specific way. And then I looked down at mine and I had chaos everywhere. I think I was just going by color. I don't I don't know. But then I felt like I could tell that you were looking at me like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> but I was wondering. That makes sense that you're trying to find your ink curve, so
1: for sure. Yeah, so I'll find my ink curve. I'll even separate out all of the characters from the items and actions just because I want to know what the odds are that I'm going to play a character on a specific turn. Mm -hmm. So once I get all of those down, I'll try to whittle all the excess cards down until I get to about 60 cards.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that actually brings up a good point because there has been a lot of discussion about the total number of cards that you should have in your deck. The standard that most people run is 60 because that's what Lorcanna kind of put out.
1: Yeah, that's the rule. That's yep. the
0: rule. But mm-hmm. some people have been talking about how they put more than 60 or less than 60. Where do you fall on that spectrum?
1: So this is a pretty complicated topic. In general, I do Don't think you should be running more than 60 because there are some matchups when you're playing, for example, a Stitch Rockstar deck or a Maurice deck, you just want to find those cards as often as you can Mm -hmm. in every single game versus every single deck. And when you go up in cards of 64, 65, I've seen people do 70, whatever it is. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, whatever it is. The odds of you drawing those cards that you really want to draw... Which you
0: built your deck around. Yeah, it
1: just goes down significantly. I've seen the argument for, like, Ruby Amethyst decks that they want to have a bunch of extra cards in their deck because you're basically adding a lot of cheap characters, so then you get a little bit better in the early game, but then you're also less likely to draw your Be Prepareds, which are the most important cards against a lot of the stitch rockstar other aggressive decks the mm-hmm. emerald amber decks. So, yeah, I I don't really like going above 60. There there is an argument that when the power level is a little more flat and all of your cards are pretty interchangeable, then you can go up to more that's happened in magic a little bit recently, but There was one specific card that really made that viable. So that was a niche scenario as well. Mm -hmm. But the power level is not super flat. The best cards in your deck in Loracana are pretty much always the best cards in your deck. You always want to play Maurice on turn four if you have the Fishbone Quill or whatever it is. You want to play it as often as you can and as early as you can. You always want to play Stitch Rockstar if you can on turn four as well. You want to shift it on to turn four. Those are the kinds of things that you have to think about when you're adding extra cards to your deck because you could play a match where you know you're just like you want know Stitch Rockstar is my best card and it often is that's why you built your deck around it but you're playing 65 cards so the chances of you drawing it in the top 10 cards of your deck just go down significantly and that's really what you want to avoid when you have cards that are that powerful, right?
0: So what stops you from going less than 60? Because I know some people have argued to do that. So you can find those specific cards.
1: Well, so... First of all, the Arcana's deck building requirement is a minimum of 60.
0: So how are why are people doing less than? I don't get why they would...
1: Yeah, so a lot, I think the conversation is, should there be less than 60 cards okay. in a deck? It's
0: not that people are actually doing it. Yeah, it's, okay.
1: it's that they are questioning whether it should be that or not. And there are other games like, I think One Piece has like, I've never played the game, but I think they have like a 50 card limit
0: Isn't Flesh and Blood less, too, Flesh and
1: Blood's a little bit less. Uh, Hearthstone is 30 cards, which when you reduce the cost, the the amount of cards you put in your deck, that just decreases the variance a lot, and it also decreases the amount of playable cards as well. So you're going to find that decks are a lot more consistent. They're doing their thing a lot quicker. And that would also make some cards probably a little too powerful. That would also really limit the kinds of cards that they could print. If they made it a 30-card minimum, you could never see a whole new world be printed because that is actually a legitimate way to win when you're milling a quarter of your opponent's deck with one card, Mm -hmm. right? So granted you can only play a couple of those hopefully <laughs> hopefully the deck limit would be like two three tops but you really limit the design that you can make on cards when mm-hmm. you you do that
0: yeah takes away the fun so it's like that's finding that sweet spot for sure.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna trust that Ravensburger put a lot of time and energy into figuring out what would be optimal. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna trust them on that one.
0: Yeah, they're definitely doing things for a rhyme and a reason. Because I think I heard recently that they already have like the next 10 years or so like planned out. So you know that they're they're being very meticulous and precise and mm-hmm. how exactly they want the game to be and they're being very methodical so you know that there's a lot of thinking behind why they set it at 60 for sure right
1: they're not just doing things to do it right yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a reason
0: okay so after I think going back because I sorry we went on a little bit of a tangent there but after you find the most powerful cards and interactions like you were talking about the stitch Rockstar, star the, the Maurice what do you do next after that
1: all right, so the next thing I like to do is go into the proof of concept stage.
0: Okay, so I... What is that? Because I've never heard that term before, being uh, new to like competitive TCG, not just kitchen table.
1: <laughs> yeah, so proof of concept is essentially trial and error to test out your theory to see how the macro, the bigger plan of your deck will play out.
0: Okay, so okay. like what we did, we've been kind of trying to play out certain decks on Pixelborn, how we're like, I want to do a villain deck or I want to do a princess deck. So that's like us seeing whether our theory of that deck, the viability of it is actually going to be Yeah. good. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> okay, okay.
1: So uh, the way I like to do that is, well, first of all, let's take the items deck that we tried, right? It was, it was not very good. The tools aren't there, but yeah. there's only one way to know and that's to try to test it out. But yeah, the first thing I really like to do is Find that card to build around. For us, it was Maurice. And then you find the deck's game plan. So that turned out to be a little bit of a combo deck where you get Ariel in play. Maybe you get Eye of the Fates in play, Maurice in play.
0: Bell too, right?
1: Bell, And then you just lay down item after item, draw a bunch of cards, quest a bunch of times with Ariel, and win in two or three turn span. How I like to build those decks or start building a deck like that is just pushing the boundaries of what that deck can do. So I'll play all the payoffs for it, like Tamatoa. It's an expensive card, but if you're playing a bunch of items, then it might just take one or two quests with Tamatoa to to seal up the game. That one didn't end up being... Great because he's really expensive, but there, there could be something there in the future. Um, so I'll play all the Tomatoas I can, I'll play all the Ariels, all the Maurices, all of the Bell Engineers, mm-hmm. and then all of the items that I can within this color and the other color that I'm choosing because it's really important to see. Well, first, you need to know how many items you can get away with playing. So if you can play 10 items and then you're only tricking your Maurice and Ariel a couple times, then if that's good enough, then you, you need to figure that out. But you also need to figure out like how many items you need at minimum in order to make this deck work. So I like to push the boundaries. Just include all the cards that fit within that specific strategy and... For there, you can get a good gauge of what card is performing well, what card is not. Maurice was incredible every time we drew it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Tamatoa was always a little bit slow. It just ate a dragon fire half the time, right? Ariel, who's a collector, was good in combination with Eye of the Fates, but kind of slow otherwise, especially if you didn't have a Maurice. So it's good to really push the boundaries so you can see exactly the cards that are working and might not work for that archetype. Yeah. From there, I like to shore up some of the deck's weaknesses a little bit. Right, so if I see that maybe Tomato is not working, it's a really expensive card, the deck seemed kind of clunky anyway like there was just a lot of three, four, five cost cards then I'm gonna want it to add in a couple one and two drops, like mm-hmm. Flounder for example, just so you can have something to put on the board in the early game, right? Okay. Yeah, because. This deck is going to have a pretty hard time losing the late game because you're drawing so many cards and then you can win within a two or three turn span. So that really shouldn't be an issue. But the the Stitch Rockstar decks, the other aggressive decks in the format, the Emerald Amber decks just got out on the board way before that we could. So we needed something that could actually pressure those characters a little bit. So Mm -hmm. we added some flounders. To buy our
0: time to get the Maurice set up.
1: We add some flounders, we eventually switch colors to rubies so we could have some dragon fires and be prepared, those kinds of things as well, to shore up the the deck building matchups and where we were a little inefficient at. One thing to really note as well is to make sure you're keeping a good curve, and this is what I was just talking about. Our curve started at like 3 with like fishbone quills or bell engineers, and that's just too slow. when someone plays a Lilo making a wish on turn one, right? Yeah. So it's we, hard
0: <laughs> yeah, to, to come back from.
1: That's really hard to come back from. Now I still want to test it out with minimal one and two cost characters that affect the board, mainly just so I can see how fast the most potent draws of this deck could be. Right, mm-hmm. like. If they're questing with two with Lilo making a wish, but you can kind of assemble your combo on turn five and then win on turn six or seven, that might not be so bad, but the deck just was a little bit too slow, so that didn't really work out that way. Yeah. It's also a really good point to make sure you keep the number of inkable cards in your deck pretty high. I'm someone that likes it it just depends on on the deck that you're playing a little bit but I try to keep 12 to 16 uninkables at most the thing about some decks is that you have fishbone quill so that could mean you play a few more inkables or Mm -hmm. uninkables maybe you're playing like a just-in-time deck with lanterns and stuff that can help you get your more expensive cards out earlier You'll play a few more uninkables just because, you know, you really only need three or four ink to, you know, set up your game plan. If you have a lot of card draw in the early to mid game, maybe you can have a lot more uninkables inkables as well if you're playing Friends on the Other Side Maleficent because you're going to draw more cards, so you'll naturally find more inkable cards anyway. Right. So uh, these are all things that are really important to consider. Do you have any questions on that?
0: Um yeah so you mentioned you know after you play test and you kind of refine and take out the underperforming ones and adjust how long do you give yourself in that play testing phase before you have basically all right I've seen enough it's time to start to refine like cuz I mean, one game probably isn't going to really show what that deck might do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that when you and I were testing out a princess deck together on one of our streams, we didn't do very well the first time, but we still gave it a couple games. And then finally we were like, okay, we adjusted it. And then once we adjusted it, I think that first game, we might have still lost. And then we thought, okay, let's give it time. And then after that, we won a couple after mm-hmm. that. So what's that sweet spot determination for how long do you give yourself?
1: So it really just depends. We That princess deck that we played, uh, we had four Be Prepareds in there after we switched to ruby
0: yeah because we started off as sapphire um, sapphire and and amber Amber,
1: yeah so uh that that deck did not feel very good from the very start the sapphire and amber one but we switched to ruby and i think we might have even won that first game i don't remember but we had like three be Prepareds in our hand and it was just like okay this is a really good card, but it's not a good card in yeah. this deck. it was like and three
0: out of the four cards we had were Be Prepareds, <sighs> and the fourth one was also uninkable, and we didn't have enough ink to, pl- be- <laughs> right, to play right, Be Prepared. Right, right. So we were just stuck for a couple of turns. Yeah,
1: but as we were playing this game, and of course we weren't playing a good matchup for Be Prepared, but I just don't think Be Prepared was good in our even though it's a really strong card, just wasn't good in our deck. And I could tell that just from that one game we played. So we played another game after that, then we just cut them all and the the deck performed considerably well after that so sometimes it can just be one game you can learn a lot from and you're just like this this does not fit my strategy yeah right other times it takes a long time to flesh it out you need a lot of testing against the variety of decks in order to understand exactly what will and what will not work Mm -hmm. for this deck but those those are usually cards that are right on the borderline of playable for your deck anyway so it's it's tough yeah it's tough so uh yeah it, it just depends sometimes it could take one game it took us one game to be like wow we prepared is not good on our deck uh sometimes it could take 10 games to realize oh you know what ursula's cauldron in this control deck is actually pretty good even though it doesn't necessarily look good on its face yeah. right so it <sighs> you know it it's it's part of why deck building is so much fun because there's just so many different layers to it uh well, it I, might
0: be fun for you but i feel like it's stressful for me <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i love it i love building decks that's something i remember when we first got the Orcana app i just build deck after deck after deck on there just to see all the different interactions that we can do just cuz i I love it. I love deck building.
0: Oh yeah. Well, I remember there was one day where you came home from work and it might've been a slow day at work and you're like, I built like 10 different decks. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I did. I did. It's like, yeah, I built like 10 decks today. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Okay. So basically it's like a rinse and repeat kind of yeah situation so, that you do.
1: Yeah. So sometimes you just, Maybe you replace the bad card in your deck with another card that doesn't work. You don't know it yet because you haven't play tested it. So you just have to keep going through all this play testing with the different versions of this deck so mm-hmm. you really know what is good. And it's tough because there's. So many different decks in Lorcana that finding the exact perfect deck list is really hard because you might get fooled one time like, oh, wow, I played against this Ruby Amethyst deck and Be Prepared was terrible. But then the next game you could play against Emerald Amber and Be Prepared could have been your best card. Yeah. And that that's possible. That's what happened to us. But... I just don't think Be Prepared was a card that we would necessarily want four of in our deck anyway. Maybe it's something that we would want one or two of just so we had that out against the more aggressive strategies.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But yeah, that's not... That's we we probably don't wanna have four, but you know, we we might not know that we didn't know that until we started playing.
0: Yeah. And luckily too, I think a huge intimidation is oh, if this deck doesn't work out, I have to wash everything and start all over. But it's really just some of your supplemental cards. I mean when you find the cards that are going to be the engines of your deck that are really gonna be driving the purpose. You're gonna keep those in it, and the only ones that you're gonna be taking in and out are gonna be all of your secondary cards. So, luckily, you don't have to necessarily wash entire concepts or entire decks and start from the ground up again. It's just tweaking maybe a percentage of your deck.
1: Yeah, sometimes, I mean, sometimes the build around just isn't very good. And then you're just like, well, I'm going to scrap this idea. That was the villains deck with the eight man of Hades. And okay, well, eight eight <laughs> Hades. <laughs> we, we tried I, that one. It was, and was like, all concept. right, that card, that card's not very good. <laughs> yeah.
0: Hey, it was a good concept in theory. I think as more sets come out, we were, it was, it's a little too early to tell. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe come set two or three, there'd be enough viable villain cards to run it but I definitely think because we built a villain deck first and then most recently we thought let's try a princess that tribal deck did better than the villain for sure oh 100% we didn't
1: win a game with the villain deck I don't think (laughs) it was bad that that one was bad
0: (laughs) okay well getting back on track here you mentioned something earlier that I do want to go back and touch on so you talked about your reasonable ink curve so unlike magic where you You have specific cards that are just designated as lands or or mana. Or in Pokemon, they're called energy cards. You have to put playable cards into your inkwell as a resource to play other cards. So... With that being said, how do you determine whether you have enough inkables in your deck? Because I feel like sometimes when we start off, we might pull the best cards in those colors and we put it into your deck, and then you realize, oh gosh, like I have X amount of uninkables. So, what is your strategy for determining what to cut, or what? What's that sweet spot for non-inkables versus inkables, and kind of making that hard decision to maybe cut? some of the non-inkables that are really good cards, but might not be into that small little range that you want.
1: Yeah, so it's tough. It really depends on your deck. Again, like, and the only way to really know is to play test your deck over and over again so you can see how consistent each number of uninkables is for you to making sure you're hitting the ink when you when you want to. Mm -hmm. So for a deck that has a lot of card draw like an especially cheap card draw like Amethyst with Maleficent and friends on the other side and even something like Ursula's Cauldron to help filter the early game cards in your deck you could probably get away with playing a few more uninkables because you're going to be seeing more cards on average than your opponents. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a deck that doesn't have a lot of card draw, maybe you're like Emerald Ruby that has no way of filtering, then there's only going to be so many that you can play because basically what you, what you have is what you're going to get. You, you don't have friends on the other side to draw a couple extra cards in the early game so there's no way to to gain that extra advantage really so it's it's really just dependent on the deck and how it feels after you play 10 20 30 games even more sometimes
0: okay so I know that this is me just asking you to come up with numbers off the top of your head but low range and high range So, when Uh, we talk about that emerald ruby, where you said there's not a lot of card draw versus the, you know, an amethyst deck with the Ursul's Cauldron, like what are your, what's that top and bottom tier?
1: So, just off the top of my head, I would say that the ruby emerald decks, they could probably get away with maybe 12 uninkables, which I think isn't, isn't that much, but yeah. Whereas some of the Ruby Amethyst decks, those could get away with more, probably around 18-ish even.
0: Okay.
1: Um, Again, that's something that when you're playtesting, maybe you want to push the boundaries of that concept a little bit, just because generally the uninkable cards are a little bit more powerful because they don't have the versatility to be equal so they they make the cards. stronger. They don't want to make them too too yeah. good
0: otherwise yeah. they're just unstoppable yeah. if you right. make them inkable and as good as they are. Yeah they,
1: they make them too good so they take away their inkability make the card a little bit stronger. So maybe if you just want to test see how powerful a deck can be maybe you play 23 or 24 uninkables it probably won't work but that way you can get a you know if you start off high You can get a range of, okay, what's too many? Then you just cut back on uninkables, and then you just keep rinsing and repeating, playtesting, going from there. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, I know this episode was a lot of high-level concepts when it comes to deck building, but I think it's important that we at least touch on what is the metagame? Because for our listeners that are either new to TCGs or, again, maybe just previously casual kitchen table players, you probably have been hearing the term thrown around a little bit and are wondering what it is. So for those who don't necessarily know what metagame means, can you describe that to them?
1: Yeah, so the metagame is generally the decks that you can expect to play against when you go to any given tournament Mm -hmm. so right now the meta game i would expect the top three decks to be amethyst ruby control Mm -hmm. uh Lemon, Lime, Aggro, and then Steel, Amber, Songs, Mm -hmm. okay? So, that is really important to know and to understand because when you're building a deck, if you know what the best cards and the format are, then you can build your deck in a way to combat those. Now, it's really hard to build a deck that can beat everything, especially when you have a limited card pool like Lorcana has, or maybe you don't have a sideboard, which we don't have. I wonder if that will happen at some point. But yeah, knowing what the metagame looks like and consists of and what the percentage of each deck you think that is going to be at that tournament, that can really influence some specific card choices, your deck choice. And if you're really good at finding what the metagame is going to be for this tournament, that can give you a high uh, level advantage against your opponents.
0: Okay. Yeah, that was really good It's just a high-level description of that. And we're going to go more into the metagame in a later episode, but I felt like that was just something that was important for us to just briefly touch on, especially in the concept of deck building. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I think this wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. I hope our listeners found a lot of great insight into the things that you take into consideration when you build a competitive deck. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I had a lot of fun. I would love to do more of these style episodes, honestly. With the
0: interview? Yeah, it was fun. (laughs) It was fun. All right, well, we'll consider that for sure. Um, So starting next week, we will finally be going over each starter deck and applying these principles we talked about today to upgrade them to a more competitive level. So until then, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter at Inkwell Gamers. Also find us on Twitch under that same name. Right now we're trying to stream at least once or twice a week. But until then, give us a follow so you can stay up to date on when our episodes drop. So with that being said, we hope you have a great week and we will catch you next time.
1: And we will catch you next week. Appreciate y'all.